Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Saw Something Scary. I am your host, Derek Zhu, alongside me as always, my co-host, the man with the plan, Jeff Wright. Jeffrey, what's going on, buddy? How are you? I'm doing all right, man, except I've got these post-adrenaline jitters. The movie we watched was pretty intense. I kind of got wrapped up in it. Definitely. Yeah, it's it's a it's a great one. We're going to be reviewing 2015's Green Room, starring the, uh, the late Anton Yelkin and Patrick Stewart. We'll get to that in a little bit. Right now, I want to get to everyone's favorite part of the show... Jeff hates trailers. I uh, got one for you. Uh, actually, it's not really even like a trailer. Trailer. It's more like like a teaser, I guess, or like first footage. Anyway, are you familiar at all with the Hatchet franchise? Nope. Yeah, I'm not either. Uh, but anyway, I found this on BloodyDisgusting.com. Actually, shout out to our buddy Josh Hall for putting this up. Um, Victor Crowley is the name of the movie. It's got Kane Hodder in it. Familiar with Kane Hodder. And it's directed by Adam Green. Apparently, he wrote and directed it. I'll give you the synopsis on it. In 2007, 49 people were brutally torn to pieces in Louisiana's Honey Island Swamp. Over the past decade, lone survivor Andrew Young's claims that local legend Victor Crowley was responsible for the horrific massacre, have been met with great controversy. When a twist of fate puts him back at the scene of the tragedy, Crowley is mistakenly resurrected, and Young must face the bloodthirsty ghost from his past. Uh, the ensemble cast also features Lauren Ortiz from 2006's The Hills Have Eyes, Dave Sheridan from Scary Movie, and Brian Quinn, uh, part of True TV's Impractical Jokers. Victor Crowley will hit select U.S. theaters in October of 2017 as part of the Dark Sky Films Victor Crowley Roadshow, where writer-director Adam Green and other cast members will travel and introduce the film at special one-night screening events across America. And then internationally, the film is slated to bout festivals worldwide. Got Kane Hodder. That's pretty much all I know about it. Are you remotely interested in seeing a slasher movie like this? Okay, yeah. So the, the details you gave me, slasher movie, part of the Hatchet franchise. Plot synopsis involves the phrase, torn to pieces, Kane Hodder. That's probably going to overload my chunky red stuff meter. Sure. Probably, probably a little too gory for me. I will... I will do this though. When there when there is a trailer, I'll probably watch the trailer just to confirm. My lord, there are three Hatchet movies. The first one came out in two thousand six. Second one came out in two thousand ten, and then the third one came out in two thousand thirteen. I think I can remember what the cover of the first one looks like, um, but no, I never watched it because just the the name alone makes me think uh, gore porn. And I know there's people out there who love it. Probably a lot of our listeners are into gory horror movies, but I just. I got no interest in that. Yeah. Joel Murray, Bill Murray's brother, Joel Murray, was in the first one. Oh, today I learned Bill Murray has a brother. Did you not know that? Do you not know Bill Murray had brothers? I did not. Yeah. Have you ever seen Christmas Vacation? Yeah. National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. Uh-huh. The boss, Chevy Chase's boss, Brian Doyle Murphy, uh-huh. or Murray, that's Bill's older brother. Really? Yeah. And then Joel Murray was actually in a movie called, I mean, he's been in several things, but the thing I automatically remember him from is God Bless America, which is a Bobcat Goldthwait movie. Uh, that I found out about maybe a year before it actually came out because Bob and I were doing a show together and he told me all about it. Oh, cool. And that was really just me name dropping Bob Cat Goldthwait. <laughs> so, yeah, that's crazy. So I guess Kane Hodder has been in all three of these. Um, and Adam Green is, I mean, it's apparently the brainchild of Adam Green. They all look like they're in the mid fives on IMDb. Like uh, Hatchet 2 got 5.5. Hatchet itself got... A five seven, a hatchet three got a five seven. So middle of the road, I guess. If you guys, you know, are into bloody, disgusting hatchet jobs, go check it out. Jeff Wright will probably look at the trailer and say no, thank you. After that, nailed it. Yeah, we're learning each other. After twenty eight episodes, we finally got this thing down. Uh, what about nineteen seventy four, man? You heard anything about that? 
So, Derek, let me tell you about 1974. Okay. Came across this on the website modernhorrors.com. Here's the premise. A newlywed couple, Altair and Manuel, disappeared in 1974. Their 8mm tapes reveal the horrifying events experienced by the couple when Altair claims to have found a way of communicating with God and builds a black brick door in her bedroom. Writer-director Victor Dreyer said the film aims to fuse together the narrative of found footage and the narrative of fiction cinematography in general. Here's here's what I read on modernhorrors.com, that this was maybe the last great hope for the found footage genre. Okay. Are you a found footage fan or are you burned out on it? I'm burned out on it by now. I think a lot of people feel that way. We've talked about this actually, I think, before. I'm kind of the last diehard. Uh, I think it gives it gives creative people who don't have huge budgets a chance to put something out there, you know. But I'm, I'm going to track this one. I'll probably check this one out just to see if they can do something new with the genre. So 1974, if anybody out there is kind of joining me on Found Footage Island and you want to give another uh, give another look and see if somebody can do something creative with it, put that in your Google machine, set an alert, and uh, check back when 1974 drops. We'll, uh, we'll follow back up with it once we get a chance to look at it. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious about it. It. Um, I, I say that I'm, I'm not a fan. I am burnt out on the found footage, but like if, if another paranormal activity movie came out, I'd go watch it. Yeah, I'm the same way. I, I'm a completist. We've talked about that. Yeah. Yep. Uh, paranoid, paranoid, paranormal activity is precisely the franchise that I'll just keep going back to see until they, you know, run the, run the well dry. Yeah. Did you watch the last one? I did. I liked how it ended where it like tied everything together. Yeah. With Katie and stuff. They, they have released, um, they, they released footage of like the, the cult house burning. Okay. And it's not been in any of the movies. And so, like, it showed up in a couple of trailers. So, I'm assuming there's one more out there that they're going to, you know, put it yeah. on. I, I, I still have a huge crush on Katie Featherstone or whatever her last name is, Featherstone or something. That was, she was great. In that yeah. First. yeah. So, I'm interested in 1974. This should be interesting. Uh, yeah. If anybody sees it before we do, yell at us. You can you can hop on our subreddit, forward slash r, forward slash saw something scary. Let us know what you think about it. Uh, maybe it's worth us reviewing later on down the road. Last but not least, let's talk Talk about Little Evil. You and I were talking about before we got on the show here today. Uh, Netflix film from writer director uh, Tucker and Dale versus Evil. Is that something you've seen that's never crossed my my wheelhouse? So no, I've never seen that either. We've got a good friend named Jody Webster who loves that movie. Mm-hmm. He's encouraged me to watch it a couple times. Maybe we ought to uh, bring him on, watch it, and give it a review. Yeah, that'd be great. We'll do that. Uh, Jody would be a great person to have on the show. Uh, so anyway, uh, Little Evil stars Adam Scott. Jeff and I are both huge fans, and Evangeline Lilly stars both of them. Kind of spoofs the Omen and Rosemary's Baby. And uh, the big question is, what would it be like to be a devil child stepfather? And so that debuts on Netflix, uh, I believe, next Friday. Yeah, I think that's right. Or actually, this Friday, since yeah. it'll be coming out. That's right, man. Time's flying this year. Yeah. So I'm usually not a huge fan of horror spoof movies, but this one I'm super interested in. I don't think anybody can watch Parks and Rec without loving Adam Scott. Yeah. We agree Evangeline Lilly was the best thing about Lost, and uh, I'm totally in on this one. I'll be streaming this early on. Definitely. Definitely. Did you ever see Party Down with Adam Scott in it? No, I don't think I did. Okay. It was a, it was a short-lived uh, TV show on Stars. And um, he's part of a catering company. And so it's it's Adam Scott. Uh, Jane Lynch was on there for a season. Megan Mullally was on there for a season. Um, gosh, who else? Uh, there's also And there's all sorts of people that'll pop up. Uh, and like they're just a catering company, right? They're all trying to be actors. They're all trying to be like performers and stuff. But they're working this catering job. And it was just, it was, it was really funny. I think I'm one of 13 people that kept up with it. Like they're just, it was just one of those kind of TV shows. But it was really great. So if you're an Adam Scott fan, check out Party down. Uh, yeah. It was on Hulu. 
I don't know if it is anymore, or maybe it was on Netflix, one of the other Netflix or Hulu, but I've seen it at Walmart, like the entire series for like 10 bucks. So Okay. Yeah, I'll check that if out. You, my, you, my wife and I have been plowing through Parks and Rec. We're not the last people to watch that, but we're drawing to an end of that, so we, we might want some... Uh, Adam Scott uh, filler material. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's on star. So there's a little more language. There's a little more sexuality and things like that. But it's, it, I, I loved it. And it's kind of what made me fall in love with Adam Scott. Cause from there, you know, before that, he was just a dude from Step Brothers my, and Boy Meets World. So that'll do it for uh, this week for Jeff H. Trailers. Before we get to the horror reporter, I wanted to talk a little Batman news with you. Lay it on me, bud. So, you and I found out yesterday, as did everyone else in the world, that Martin Scorsese and Todd Phillips are looking to bring a Joker movie into the world that's away from the DC Extended Universe. Um, that's pretty much all we know about it. Jared Leto won't be a part of it. Woohoo! Yeah, thank God for that. Uh, and so, that's, I mean, that's, that's pretty much it. Well, today, I mean, before, like, so as we're, as we're setting everything up to watch Green Room, I'm looking through just to try to find some movie news and things like that so that we can talk about it on here. And I find out that now DC and Warner Brothers are firing up a second Joker movie. This one is Joker and Harley Quinn. And this one will have Jared Leto and Margot Robbie in it, which I'm all for Margot Robbie. She did a fantastic job as Harley Quinn, but for the love of God, why is Jared Leto still playing the Joker? So now it's being told that he'll be in Suicide Squad 2, and he'll also be in the Sirens movie, Gotham Sirens. And now, so three more times, Jared Leto is going to be playing the Joker. Shoot me in the head. What are we even doing here, man? So I guess let's handle that bit by bit. I'm really excited to see a comic book movie made by Martin Scorsese. Yes. Doesn't Phillips seem like a really weird fit to partner up with for this? Yes. I think I think I was joking with you earlier where I said that Zach Galifianakis is probably going to play Harley Quinn. Bradley Cooper is going to wind up playing the Joker. And they'll throw Ed Helms in there for some reason, too. And he'll sing a song. All of that sounds preferable to seeing Jared Leto as the Joker. Again. Yes. So I guess you can probably tell where we're going to go with the second set of this news. Here's the other thing that I'm I'm cool with. I'm cool with him doing an alternate universe set of comic book movies. Two of my favorite comic book series of all time, they, they kind of do the same thing for each one of the franchises. Marvel has a, a line called What If? So there's all these alternative scenarios that they play out. Uh, and then the, the DC equivalent is called Elseworlds. And some of the Elseworlds tiles are some of my favorite out of anything DC's ever done. So, hey, more power to it. Let's put it out there. I've read that this, this Scorsese film is going to be a Joker origin story. Yeah. I, I don't want a definitive Joker origin story. I think he's better as a character. We don't really know where he comes from. But if they want to say up front, this is just one possible, you know, non-canon tale. Dude, I'm in. Yeah. Count me in. Do you think it's like, do you think they're going to try to do like the Killing Joke? Yeah, maybe. That would be one that you'd put out. Just like a live action Killing Joke. Sure. You know, they did that animated version of it last year with Mark Hamill. I just wonder if that's where they're kind of going with it or if it's going to be more like a Jack Napier in uh, Batman 89. Well, you know, Nolan played with some of that stuff too uh, with Ledger. And so, hey, more power to him. There's some really great Joker stories out there that you can tell. If it's not going to be in continuity, you can do really extreme stuff. Great. Sign yeah. me up. Now, I'm completely across the board on, well, can we just start with the fact that Suicide Squad is getting a sequel? Yeah. 
What are you thinking? Academy Award-winning Suicide Squad is getting a sequel. I really do think Warner Brothers must be either intentionally trying to torpedo the DC Cinematic Universe, or they have too much money. Yeah. They they don't know what to spend their money on. I don't know, man. You think that... I mean, I know that, like, critically, it was panned, but maybe it made enough money to register a sequel. I don't know. I didn't really keep up with it enough. I know that I watched it, and I literally cursed at the screen at least three times while watching the movie. If I were running things, obviously there's a reason I'm not, but if I were running things and I'm willing to have an alternative universe that's not in canon, I would flip the original Suicide Squad into that alternative universe, say that was a one-off, wasn't in canon. I may try to bring Leto back, but I make him go back to the drawing board with the character. I take the stupid tattoos off, all the teeth, you know, all that mess and tell him we got to take another run at this. Um, and then if I'm putting out another Suicide Squad movie, um, I'm going down to bare bones and, and redoing the whole thing. Well, speaking of non-canonical, uh, let me say this to you. Today, in a recent interview, uh, the Batman director, Matt Reeves, who just did the last Planet of the Apes movie, has revealed that he was pitched on a standalone film as it being an isolated approach to Gotham's Dark Knight. When they approached me, what they said was, look, it's a standalone. It's, this isn't part of the extended universe. Well. What the heck? Yeah, dude. This movie, man, it it sounds like it's cursed, snake bit, whatever you want to say. I just don't. I'm just upset. I don't know if you've noticed this, and we may have talked about it on the podcast already, but Marvel's live action can basically do no wrong at this point. Their animated stuff is not particularly good. Right. DC, their animated stuff is really, really, really good. They basically can't get anything right with their live action stuff. Yeah. I don't understand why this has to be. And again, we've talked about it before. I think there's a pretty easy solution. You call up Joss Whedon, say, hey, we're going to have a money truck delivered. You just... You know, run the run the show for us for a while till we get our feet under us till we get a few people who can kind of learn the ropes and let's go. Yes, but I mean, I'm all for that. But speaking of Josh Whedon, have you heard the stuff going on with him this past week? Okay, so we'll just go on a tangent here for a second. His uh, his ex wife Kay Cole, I believe that's her name, has written an op ed about him that just slams him. Oh, uh, he deceived me for 15 years. Josh Whedon's ex wife Kay Cole pins essay calling him a hypocrite, preaching feminist ideals. So basically, there's I, I we won't get into it here, but she said some very slanderous things about Josh. I in no reason have any right to doubt her on this, but at the same time, you want to try to take those kind of things with a grain of salt. Um, but I do know that it has given him a lot of negative publicity. Uh, as a matter of fact, one of his like biggest fan sites, I think it's called like the Whedonverse or Whedonesque or something like that. Uh, it's been around for the last dozen years or maybe longer, and it shut down. They were like, since this has gone on, we're done. Wow. So... I don't know. It's uh, It doesn't look good. It obviously doesn't favor him. His people have come out and said that Joss won't respond. Uh, that there's been several inaccuracies that are put into that. But basically, she basically, you know, talks about how he made her feel uh, useless and, and took advantage of her. Uh, not not take, not took advantage of her in like a sexual kind of way, but just in a mental, you know, yeah. n- nothing that a husband should be doing to a wife. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't pin him in the best light ever. So, uh, gosh. So I don't know, man. You know, you, yeah. you, you root for somebody like Joss Whedon because he does seem like the every man and he does seem like he, you know, he has those, you know, he wants to see women, you know, succeed and things like that. And then you hear something like this and you go, oh, well. Here we are. Yeah, I I hate to comment on any of that stuff. Uh, 
you know, obviously, if she has been abused or, or wrong, she deserves justice. Right. So I don't fault her for seeking after that. But there's also, there's some things that if it doesn't rise to the level of abuse, I just wish we didn't have it out in public view. Mm-hmm. Now, again, the people involved get to make those decisions, not me. But it just feels dirty kind of even knowing that stuff. But it does sound like Joss has enough on his plate right now that I don't know that we'll be seeing much from him creatively till who knows when. Yeah. Yeah. That's so just... Just crazy stuff going on in the DCEU. Uh, I'm uh, I'm not looking forward to any of this stuff now. Well, there is Shazam. Yes, Shazam is still around, and I'm pretty excited about that. But that'll do it for our our superhero snark down. Uh, anyway, you wanna you wanna take over here for the horror reporter? Do we have that wonderful cut in for the horror reporter? If we do, let's play that right now. This week's horror. All right, man. So we've got all this good stuff from the Flanagan verse. Apparently, Mike Flanagan and Netflix have found a very comfortable working relationship because his adaptation of Stephen King's Gerald's Game now has a premiere date coming live to you. Well, not live to you, streaming to you via Netflix, uh, September 29th. That's a Friday. Oh, holy smokes! Yeah. So we'll uh, we'll get to see some horror material from Stephen King and Mike Flanagan. So this is a film. This isn't a series. I think this is a film. Okay, so the first week in October, we'll be reviewing Gerald's Game. Okay, in on that. So, do you know the premise on that? I don't. Fill me in. Back when Flanagan optioned this material, I read that this movie was unadaptable, or rather that this novel was unadaptable. Wow. Basically, a woman uh, kills her husband after she's been handcuffed to a bed uh, in some marital intimacy, is my understanding of that. Not that there was violence going on, but they were playing bedroom games. Somehow she manages to kill him, and she's left there unable to free herself. And then she, she goes through this prolonged period there, trapped, and begins to either slip into insanity or start having visions. It's hard to tell what it is. So anyway, Flanagan uh, loves this material, decided he wanted to adapt it. King tweeted recently that he's uh, that he has seen a rough cut of the movie. He called it horrifying, hypnotic, and terrific. And here's the thing. It's got real talent. Carla Gugino, uh, Henry Thomas, Bruce Greenwood, and guess who? Let me guess. Kate Siegel? Kate Siegel. Yeah, there it is. So I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I'm like you. I'll, I'll be glad to review it. I'm looking forward to seeing what he does with the material. Anything Flanagan's doing right now, I'm going to check out. I've got to marry like Catherine Bigelow or somebody so that I'll just always have a, I'll always have a movie to do. Yeah, and you have a muse, right? Right. You'll always have your creative juices stirred. Uh, speaking of Flanagan, we talked about uh, additions to his cast last week, but Timothy Hutton is now signed on for the ha- the Haunting of Hill House. Timothy Hutton, really? Yeah, I haven't heard that name in forever. No, but don't you always like his performances? Yeah, he's always great. Think about the last time you saw a bad Timothy Hutton job. So I think the last Timothy Hutton thing I saw was Secret Window. Yeah, that may be right. Holy smokes! Minute. Yeah, that's been like thirteen years, man. Well, you will get to see him on The Haunting of Hill House, apparently. That would be wonderful. I'd love to talk to Mike Flanagan about that. Maybe one day we'll get to. Speaking of Netflix, we also got news this week that Stranger Things Season 3 is confirmed. Whoa! Yeah, but I was more interested in uh, some of the other material that came out from uh, the interview that gave us this news. Okay. So, uh, the Duffer Brothers were talking to Vulture, and they confirmed Season 3 was coming. Awesome. But this is what Ross Duffer says. We're thinking it will be a four-season thing and then out. Whoa! So, like, good news, bad news, right? Yeah. We may get up to four seasons of this thing. And at this point, how could Netflix... I mean, how bad would season two have to do for them to not play this string out? But, nonetheless, we might get up to four seasons, but we know... 
we're only going to get four seasons. That's bittersweet. Yeah, but, but you know what? Kudos to them, man. Because how many times have we seen a TV show reach its apex and then just drop off? Lost. Lost. Dexter. And? I mean, Twin Peaks. Twin Peaks. I just thought that you would agree with me on Dexter instead of leaving me there with my... Yeah, so, yeah, Lost, Dexter, Twin Peaks. Uh, I mean, my gosh. You could make a case for The Office. That the office, you know, was at its apex. Steve Carell left, and then it just kind of floated around in the ether for a couple of years. Um, you know, it's it's always good to go out on top. Breaking Bad went out on top. Sure, you know, like seeing it, the end date from the beginning really does help. It does. Yeah. So on one hand, I mean, that stinks that we're only going to get what like fifty two episodes of this thing because there's what thirteen in the original season. So if they go by that model, we'll get fifty two episodes of it. But at the same time, we're going to get fifty two episodes of it. So and that's enough time to to. If they, you know, stick with the original cast, if those beloved um, child actors hang around with us, we'll get to see them grow up quite a bit through this. You know, it'd be almost like we got a Goonies franchise. Yeah. I mean, you don't want 11 to be 35 at the end of this thing. You know what I mean? Like, sure. That's, that's a good point. So, so yeah, good good and bad on that. But good for them for knowing, like, this thing has a shelf life and they don't want to go past that. Yeah. Well, last bit of news I have for you isn't actually movie related in terms of a new film project or TV show. But I did notice that Blitzway, which is a maker of fine action figures, okay. has revealed their Silence of the Lamb. Uh, excuse me, has revealed their Silence of the Lambs Dr. Hannibal Electric collectibles this year at Comic Con. These are one six scale action figures, and the level of detail is absolutely stunning. They have posted up their pre orders, and they're giving two or they're making two versions available for sale. So one is Hannibal Lecter straight jacket version, and the other is Hannibal Lecter white prison uniform version. Okay. These look incredible. They stand about 12 inches tall. Uh, according to Blitzway, they have about 30 point. They have over 30 points of articulation. So the figures stand about 12 inches tall, and according to Blitzway, they have over 30 points of articulation. Each will include an assortment of interchangeable parts, weapons, and accessories. They are due for release in the first quarter of 2018. And buddy, I would love to buy you one of these. But guess what they run? Uh, 45 bucks. $269 a piece. What? Like, you should think they should have, like, real pieces of Anthony Hopkins in there. For a doll? Yeah, dude. An action figure. Ugh, holy smokes. You better give me some action for that much money. Good Lord. It is a great-looking action figure. I mean, I'm looking at them right now, and it is, I mean, yeah, it's stunning. But holy shnikes. $269? I guess so those of you who are listening, you love Derek Zoo comedy and his work here on these podcasts we do for free every week. You want to bless him, get him some desk art, find him a Hannibal Lecter Blitzway character and send it his way. Yeah, for real. If uh, if you enjoy our banter back and forth, Jeff and I would be happy to, to do these on the road sometime. And all you have to do is pay us two hundred and sixty nine dollars. But it also has to be within a 30-mile radius of Sparta, Tennessee. So, I mean, and really, what important uh, center of population and culture isn't within 30 miles of Sparta, Tennessee? <laughs> it's not like we're exactly setting the bar too high here. The bar. Uh, yeah, man, holy smokes. I had, that blows me away. Uh, they, yeah, they. I mean, I just Googled them. They look amazing, but not $269 amazing. Uh, I am a little disappointed that there wasn't an Anthony Hopkins Dr. Hannibal actor and a Mads Mikkelsen Dr. Hannibal actor. Oh, yeah. They should have done that. Yeah. So Well, get at that, Blitzway. So screw you, Blitzway. Drop the price of your dolls. <laughs>
If we have any like hardcore action figure collectors right now, they're they're nuclear. The only reason I say that is because I used to have uh, every WWF action figure in the world, and my great grandmother, who was at least like ninety at the time, you know, I was in I was in the I was in the living room one day at my grandparents' house, just playing, you know, doing my WrestleMania or whatever, and she goes, "Oh, look at you playing with your dolls," and I was like, "No." They're action figures. You know, okay, just play with your dolls. And I was like, no, but they're not dolls. They're action. So, so now I do that. It's a troll. personal story. I do that to troll people now. Yeah, I'm a I'm an action figure collector myself. All right, man. You want to pull the curtain here and talk about Green Room? Are you going to pay two hundred sixty nine dollars for an action figure? Not this side of you know the insane Glory. asylum. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, let's pull the curtain, man. Let's talk about the Green Room. All right, so. Uh, I had to look it up, but this comes from writer-director Jeremy Saunier. Ooh. How do you like that right there? Like my favorite wine. Yeah. So, uh, (laughs) this film comes to us from writer-director Jeremy Saunier. Have you seen his 2007 Murder Party? I haven't, but I want to now. It sounds amazing. What about 2013 Blue Ruin? Man, I want to say that I've seen Blue Ruin, but maybe it's just because I just watch Green Room and colors are on my brain. Uh, so I'm going to say no. I read a couple interviews with him where they asked him, like, are your movies now going to have a color theme? And he said, no, they just ended up working out that way. Yeah. But Blue Ruin does sound good. I didn't watch the trailer for it this week, but it's uh, basically a revenge tale. This mm-hmm. guy goes back to his hometown to get revenge. Oh, wow. And uh, actually, I read an interview with Sonia who said that there's a lot of similarities to Green Room and like the characters are over their heads and trying mm-hmm. to find their way out of a bad situation. I might track that one down. Tune into 2019's Red Rum by Mr. Somalia here. All right, Derek. So what we have in Green Room is an interesting combination of punk rock and neo-Nazis. How fitting for this day and age, Jeff, right? Some people would say that's uh, that's timely. Yeah. I uh, I just want to assure our listeners we actually did not plan this. We uh, did not realize that the events of Charlottesville would break out in the week when we decided to cover Green Room, but here we are. So with this movie, uh, you, you do have a pretty interesting premise. You've, you've got this, this band who's just trying to hustle out, you know, a, a tour – uh, living out of their van, bumming gas money, stuff like that. And they end up in a bad situation in a in a backwoods club. So from now on, Derek, every time I think about your comedy career, I'm going to picture basically this movie. <laughs> this is exactly where I was at Thursday night. Completely, completely can get all of this with the exception of having to murder everyone on my way out the door. Oh, by the way, Wahlberg, get in here. What? No. Spoiler alert. Thank you very much. Without me having to murder everyone out the door, so well, uh, take some, take a camera with you next time. Yeah, we'll do our own found footage film. Sounds wonderful. I, I read an interview with Sonia where he talked about his inspiration for the movie. He said that he, for a long time, wanted to make a movie where basically the conflict takes place in a green room. Mm-hmm. Um, he says environment is very key to how I develop stories. And having been in a punk band and falling in love with the aesthetic and the energy and the music, I've been at lots of concert venues. I thought it'd be really cool to capture that energy. And um, he calls it actually an obsession that he developed. He said that in 2007, he did a short film that he took to some of those 48-hour film festivals. Uh, He said he'd shot in his basement. And at the time, it was more of a supernatural horror movie. So there was a demon and some crazy stuff. He said it was it was fun, but it was really hammy and had a heavy metal atmosphere. Okay. So with this movie, he's coming back to something that's near to his heart and taking another crack at it with a little bit more of a budget. That's pretty interesting, man. I had no idea that it was so close to close to home on you know for him. 
Yeah, I was surprised to read that he was part of the the punk rock movement. Yeah. Uh, he said that he was very involved in that when he was a kid in the 90s. He said he was in the hardcore scene in Virginia. Now, you tell me what the hardcore scene in Virginia looks like, uh, and that's not a pun, again, on current events. Right. I just can't yeah. imagine Virginia is like Golly, man. the seat of punk rock energy and angst. Maybe this was the wrong week to put this one out. <laughs> Maybe it was. Uh, he said the group there in Virginia, they'll cross the bridge into D.C., which obviously those are pretty close. Mm-hmm. And uh, he said he got into a much bigger crowd. And it was there in the D.C. punk scene where he started meeting Nazi skinheads. Okay. This is So here's a direct quote. Okay. That was definitely bizarre that people would be out in bright sunlight during a matinee show proudly wearing swastikas. That element of danger stuck with me. I knew they were uh, I knew they were part of the world of punk and hardcore, yet very different as far as ideology and structure. They wore uniforms, were easily identifiable. They were like soldiers. Uh, he goes on, they had a whole different set of ethics and belief systems, and they fought hard um, for their causes. And so he said it just happened that the skinhead element of the punk rock scene caught his interest. Um, and he sees them as a natural adversary in this sort of world, this touring band uh, kind of world. <laughs> that's really interesting. So do you think, is it surprising to you that a movie that's built on punk rock ethos and neo-Nazis also stars Patrick Stewart? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it does, but thank God he's in this movie because he really is the thing that makes the whole movie, in my opinion. Couldn't agree more. It, this is a completely different movie and probably one we never watch if Patrick Stewart's not in it. But now having said that, if you had told me before I knew about Green Room that there was a movie built on a punk rock band, neo-Nazis, and Patrick Stewart's lead performance, I would have said that movie not only does not exist, it will not exist. So incongruous. But here we have uh, this Film specimen. Yeah. And it turned out pretty well. Yeah. I'll tell you, man, this came on my radar from, again, from Josh Hull and from uh, from Mike D. And they both were like, dude, you got to watch this movie. Patrick Stewart is amazing. I never watched the trailer for it. I had no idea what it was about. Right. So rented the movie, watched it, had no idea it was about punk rockers or neo-Nazis or anything like that. So for the first like 10 minutes of the movie, I'm like, for the love of it, this is, this is horrible. I didn't, I didn't pay to watch, you know, Anthrax. I just want to watch Patrick Stewart be a bad guy. And then when it kicks in, holy smokes, man. Yeah, it kicks in hard. Yeah. Big time. And the the ramp up is all centered on him. Mm-hmm. Not surprising. Yeah. But I, another interview I read with Sonia said that they were actually very late in the process of this film when they had him sign on. And he says that they actually saved them from deep doo-doo. <laughs> Uh, he's, Sanye says, we're trying to cast the movie. He just swooped in and saved the day. Lent his support and his craft, dedication to the film. He was a huge asset. Once he was on board, everything clicked into gear. And this is, I think, the key statement. He says, we'd reached a new level of legitimacy. That's absolutely right, man. This movie just doesn't get even Netflix and Redbox attention if a guy like Stewart doesn't sign on Yeah. It. Oh, I mean, how many times have we seen stuff like that happen, right? Like a, a decent movie or a good movie that just needs that extra oomph to it. And so they bring in a Patrick Stewart or they bring in, a, I don't know, Tom Hardy or something like well, that. Well, let me throw back to the earlier in our, um, our episode here. That's basically the, the last, you know, the most recent part of Bill Murray's career. He signs on to these strange little projects that seem, you know, super obscure and not what you'd expect from him. But yeah. his presence alone makes everybody pay attention and say, well, let's go check this out. Yeah, good call. Good call for sure. Uh, more on Stewart when when asked about his uh, his how he came to the film in a interview with the New York Times, he said he was drawn to the deep unease that the green room conjured in him. Uh, he said he didn't know the name of the director, hadn't heard of any of his previous films. 
Didn't know anything about white supremacists, but he sat down at his house in rural West Oxfordshire. Doesn't that sound like exactly where Patrick Stewart would live? West Oxfordshire? In a cottage in the woods. Yeah, and there's like pipe smoke in the air, and there's probably like hobbits or something that are playing in the front yard. He's in a velvet smoking jacket. Absolutely. I see he read about 35 pages of the screen. Ian McKellen is brushing his hair by the fire. Not Stewart's hair, obviously. No, no, no. Not Stewart's hair. Yeah, yeah. Ian McKellen's over there. Patrick, we're going to the matinee today. Not now. So he said he read about 35 pages of the script, set it down, got up and went all around his house, checking that the doors and windows were locked, turned on the perimeter lights, set the alarm, as if there's such a thing as crime and evil doing in West Oxfordshire. (laughs) Then he said, I poured myself a scotch. So I guess this movie got in his head. Yeah. I mean, 35 pages in I would seem about right to where, like, the poop hits the fan. And yeah, I could see it, man. And that's when you start checking your yeah doors and windows, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, that's like when, you know, you watch The Strangers for the first time, and then you go home, and you're like, I got to make sure that everything is secure, because I don't need some dude in a burlap sack coming to kill me in the middle of the night. So I, I completely get it. Well, and as a, as a Second Amendment American living in the Deep South... Oil and load every gun. Just all of the guns. That's right. Start decorating the house with guns. (laughs) You ain't getting me burlap sack, man. (laughs) Well, this is... Ruffin's racing. I don't know if that's got to do with it. I don't think that has anything to do, but that's fine. Uh, I do think this is a good time to talk about the the spirit of this movie, Mm -hmm. which is surprising, constant... Terror. Egregious terror. Yeah. Built on really shocking acts of violence. Yeah. That's a really great way of putting it. I told you, riding over here to watch and record this episode, that I was afraid this was going to kind of ping my gore meter. Mm-hmm. This isn't a particularly gory movie. Right. They they do a lot with sound effects. Stuff happening off scene or like where uh, the violence is happening just outside of the panel of the camera. Uh, is that the right phrasing yeah. for that? Yeah. Uh, really effective cinematography. Yeah, it's right outside the shot. Right outside the shot. There yeah. You go. Thank you. So I read in the AV Club's review of this movie, and I think this is right on. Characters don't get killed in this movie. They get annihilated. The violence in Green Room is swift and hideous, demonstrating the damage a bullet, a knife, a dog, even a box cutter can do to human flesh. And when the actors respond to that violence, they do so not with gritted teeth steeliness, but the full pain and panic one might expect from any ordinary person caught in this situation. The other thing they do is not just wail and scream very convincingly, but by the end of the movie, they are completely exhausted, uh, almost dehumanized, right? They're just like meat automatons fighting for survival, Yeah, which looks like what... You know, I've never suffered an, uh, a, a tragedy like uh, an earthquake or a terrorist attack, anything like that. But the people you see coming out of those things look a lot like the the final survivors of this movie. Yeah. So I yeah. thought that was credit to them and their acting. And even like the way that they paint themselves in, in almost like a camouflage, they almost look skeletal at the end of it. You know, like that they've just, I mean, they've just, they've lost their humanity. Yeah, they go full tribal. Yeah. Full war paint. You're absolutely right. Good point. <laughs> you never go full tribal. <laughs> what else we got? Well, I just want to talk about uh, the tension in this movie. I told you that I would liken it to Don't Breathe, yeah. where you spend a lot of time worrying about what's going to come around the corner again. You care about these characters. I, when when that movie opened, you see a van that has obviously drifted off the road into a cornfield, and you see the band, and they're kind of waking up from a 
from a stupor. And I thought about saying, well, isn't this charming? Right. This movie is not charming by the time you're done with it. No. But they do enough charming at the beginning to make you really care about the characters. Yeah. Uh, the Atlantic, in their review of the film, said, it's very much of the kind of film where each new development seems to dare the audience to think, well, it can't get any worse than this <laughs> before proving them wrong. And that's what we said about Don't Breathe. Yeah. It, it's nothing crazier can happen, and then something crazier happens. And then there was a turkey baster. Then there was a turkey baster. Thanks for reminding me of that. You're welcome. I'm going to let you finish here, and I'm going to go puke in that trash can. That's what I'm here for. Second podcast in a row. <laughs> uh, just carrying on with the Atlantic, just some good stuff they noted that I think will help people. If they haven't seen this movie, decide if they want to. Uh, as the full weight of the situation of the protagonist begins to sink in, uh, they start making dumb decisions as often as they make smart ones. But they, the film does do a good job of keeping total hopelessness at bay. And I would even say this movie ends on a happy note. Yeah. It's a mitigated happy note, but yeah. it's a happy note. The only person I knew in the cast other than Patrick Stewart was Anton Yelchin, mm-hmm. however you say it. Um, but I would say the acting in this is a strength. Mm-hmm. Everybody kind of handles their business pretty well from a uh, portrayal standpoint. Yeah, from punk rocker to neo-Nazi, these guys really nail their parts. Like they, I mean, they do a really good job. That's not something you expect to hear from any kind of movie review. But, I mean, the villains, you want to see them get their comeuppance. And the heroes, you want to see them survive. Sure. And when they don't, it, it hurts, you know. Like For it, sure. It, it, it either makes you cringe or it breaks your heart, one or the other. And, you know, and it's it's amazing to me. It, Wahlberg's already been here, so we can talk about it. It's amazing to me that I never thought I would cheer Patrick Stewart being shot in the head. But the first time I watched this movie, I was like, yeah! You know, like, you got what you deserve, you cue-balled racist. <laughs> you know, there's a there's an author I like to read named G.K. Chesterton. And he, one of the things I like about him is that he seems to really understand the mechanics of a good story. And he says it's an evil story that doesn't have a truly evil character. And I have always appreciated that insight. Yeah. Uh, and this has a this has a deeply evil character. Yeah, big time, big time. This movie. Uh, I mean, he's he's almost Heisenbergish. You know, mm-hmm. if we go back to the the Walter White or the Breaking Bad references, I mean, he's very like he. You know, he through the whole movie, he's trying to make everyone think that everything's okay while plotting to just destroy this band who just walked in at the wrong time, right? Just an inopportune moment. Well, and that's the key point we were talking about earlier about how this movie hangs on Patrick Stewart. And if it's not him, it's an infinitely lesser movie. Yeah. You need someone with his kind of gravitas, uh, the kind of person you believe is a leader of men and who aimed at the wrong, you know, ultimate goal could be just as murderous and just as wicked as the character he plays here. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, Derek, I guess really the thing I'd like to finish on is Anton Yelchin. So, uh, everybody listening to this, I'm sure, is aware that he died in 2016 at 27 years old. Mm. Uh, and Sonier had this to say a couple of days after his death. Anton was a dream. He was kind and sharp and as sincere as anyone I've ever known. Our collaboration on Green Room was our first, and until the devastating news of his passing, wouldn't have been our last. I put a lot on his shoulders when I asked him to play my lead, but he carried the cinematic weight like a champion. Not only did he bring a delicate balance of tragic vulnerability and intense physicality to his character on screen, which he's absolutely right, right? I mean, Yelchin did just mm-hmm. that. He offered his unending generosity and patience off screen. In an industry governed by Excel sheets and foreign sales estimates, Anton reminded me that there's nothing more valuable than good people. He put me back in the comfort zone I knew growing up, making backyard films with best friends, and created a protective bubble where creativity could thrive. You know, thinking back to all of Anton's movies that I've seen, I've never seen him put in a bad performance. I don't think I've ever seen him in a bad movie. So it's it's a real tragedy. Uh, it's a real shame. He's just one of those guys where when you found out that he had passed, like it 
legitimately kind of took my breath away. And I, I don't know if it was because like I just I fell in love with him playing checkoff or just the fact that he was 27 and there's nobody younger than me that should be dying, you know, but it, it, it broke my heart. Like it was just it was one of those moments. I remember I was actually uh, I was actually going to an audition and read the news and I just had to sit down on the couch for a second because I was just like that just shouldn't happen. Yeah, it just shouldn't happen. And, and and for somebody that was so talented and so full of life and was in kind of getting into the peak of his career, uh, just making, you know, making amazing things like this. You know, he was doing the popcorn movies like Star Trek, but then he's doing something like this, you know, stretching himself. We're talking about, you know, Patrick Stewart going out of his comfort zone. He's going out of his comfort zone here, right? Uh, it's, it's tragic. And then, you you know, you read these, you know, wonderful words from a director that just worked with him once. And, you know, it's, 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 it's really sad. Obviously, the, the greater tragedy is just that a young man has lost his life, right? I mean, it's not like our entertainment wishes for his career are, are the most minor part of the tragedy here, right? One thing in particular I thought watching this movie is that I would like to have seen him play the lead in an action movie. Uh, he's very competent in sort of that role here. Mm-hmm. And he seems like the kind of young man that, you know, action has sort of enjoyed a renaissance in recent years. And at the age he was... When he died, I think he could have built a franchise around him. That may sound grandiose, but he, he kind of proved his chops in the in the parts that he was in in Star Trek. This movie showed you could really build a movie around him. I uh, I would like to have seen like seen what he could have done in, in something more uh, more big budget and uh, truly built around him with with real Hollywood resources. Yeah. Yeah, one of my favorite movies that he did was called Charlie Bartlett. I didn't see it. It was him uh, and Cat Dennings and Robert Downey. Oh, sure. And it was it was in that it was in that weird period of time when Downey came back before he was Robert Downey Jr. Right? It's a ten year old movie. Uh, it's just and it's a really just it's a fun movie. He does such a wonderful job in it, and uh, he and Downey play off each other really well. And so, yeah, I would love to have seen that too. He could have been a great. I mean, thinking about, it, I mean, you probably don't want to cast him in this now because it's almost. Toby Maguire syndrome, but he might have been a great Peter Parker. Sure. You know? Or a Joker. Or anything. Not just superheroes. I mean, that's, you know, those franchises are the talk of the town right now, but anything, you know, he could have been great in. So, yeah. It's tragic, man. Yeah, I mean, we're not saying anything people who are aware of the story don't know, but it does seem appropriate, having watched this film, to just spend a few minutes recognizing that we lost something that looked to be pretty special there. Yeah. Not just in an actor, but just a, a young man. Yeah. You know, he, he's uh, he's had a couple movies that have come out since his passing. Of course, the last Star Trek movie. Uh, we talked about Rememory last week on the podcast. I think that's even kind of how this whole thing started, to review this movie this week. So it's, it's, it's you know, it's always sad to hear of anyone uh, in their 20s passing away, especially Especially in such a freak, freak accident sure. like that. But to know that, uh, you know, it's Heath Ledger. You know, Heath, Heath died right before his world blew up. Yeah. And, and so it's a shame that, and, you know, the same thing, same kind of tragedy befell Anton. Well, that's a down note to end on. This is a movie that's well worth watching. Absolutely. If you can handle the violence in it, I think you're going to uh, you're going to feel like you spent your money and your time pretty well there. A scale of 1 to 10, where you put it? I would put this movie at about a 6. Okay. Yeah. All right. I've seen better. Yeah. But this is totally worth, like I just said, the time and the uh, money invested. Mm-hmm. You? I'd say 7. I thought that the performances from Anton Yelkin and uh, Patrick Stewart put it a point above uh, the intensity. I mean, you stay on the edge of your seat the entire time. Um, not necessarily scary. I don't think we saw anything scary tonight, but intense. Well, you know, there were times where I was legitimately frightened about what was going to happen to these characters I cared about. So, okay, um, I, you're not wrong in saying it's tense, but yeah. I, I'm, I'm going to go and say, yeah, I saw something scary here. Not traditionally scary. You know, not the demon's going to jump out and eat your face. Right. But, again, they did a good job of making me care about these characters, put them in danger, and I was I was experiencing fear. 
Okay. Well, there you have it. I mean, I won't, I won't argue that. I think that's a great point. So yeah, go out of your way to see the green room. Uh, I know it was on, it was in Redbox for a while. Is it on Netflix? Do you know? It was on Netflix it for a while, but I looked tonight and it wasn't uh, available. So okay. I think they pulled it. Uh, so, but I'm sure you could, you can rent it on iTunes or Amazon or anything like that. Go, go out of your way. This is one of those movies I would go, I would tell you to go out of your way to watch. If you like horror movies enough to listen to a podcast called Saw Something Scary, you should be watching this movie. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, much better than some of the drivel we've been watching lately. No kidding. So, all right, man. So next week, this comes out on Tuesday. Uh, that means Friday, September the 1st, which means the next Friday is September the 8th, which is finally what we've come for. So I say next week we watch the miniseries, It, with uh, John Ritter and Tim Curry and Harry Anderson and, and Ed O'Toole. And then the next week we get to we get to watch the big one. Yeah, man. I'm so excited. I'm pumped. Hoo-dee-hoo. Yeah, we're all going to flow down there for sure. Jeff Wright, where can they find you on social media? At Wright Jeff, most of the platforms. You can find me at Derek Zoo. You can find us at Scary Podcast on Facebook and Twitter. And, of course, our subreddit is forward slash r forward slash saw something scary. You can talk to Jeff. Uh, special thanks to Ryan M. Brewer for our theme music. You can find him on Twitter at Ryan M. Brewer. You can find him on Spotify and Pandora. Go listen to a few of his songs. You will not uh, be disappointed. I guarantee you on that. Guys, thanks so much for listening. Remember, rate, review, subscribe. Uh, give us some of those five stars on Apple our Podcasts. Uh, make sure that you're telling your friends about us. Thank you so much. Next week, we'll watch the miniseries It. We'll see you then. Till next week. Bye-bye, man.